0: Oh, those were the days, uh, Steve. I know you were chanting that back in the early 80s. Uh, Come on, Eileen. I beg your pardon. (laughs) I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) I was only 83 then. Yes. We know about your past, though. (laughs) We won't tell everything. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Here he is, here he is, it's Thursday morning, Um, and actually, I was thinking earlier on, there's actually not that much to talk about this week, but
1: actually, we were just talking off air, and actually, there's a lot going on, right? It's amazing, it's amazing. I mean, shall we start with with a new law? I always like a new law. Nothing like it. Nothing like a new law. Um, Every new law that comes to Hong Kong is a good one. So this one Hmm. is the National Anthem Law. (laughs) Now, this is interesting, because uh, Carrie Lam, bless her, says, oh you really mustn't politicise this. There's nothing political about the National Anthem. Now, she's either having a laugh, or she's got a strong sense of irony, or she's never read a book. Let's go for never read a book, because she should know something about March of the Volunteers, which is mm. the National Anthem. Mm. Um, incidentally... One of the reasons we're getting it is because China doesn't have a national anthem law. It's just because China's, uh, uh, the mainland's introducing one. But you know who does have a national anthem law? I mean, this is bizarre. Go on. Macau. Oh, really? Yes, Macau, the splendid example to Hong Kong. They've actually got a law about how it should be sang. But let's just talk about the national anthem law, because the March of the Volunteers is is very interesting. It started out life in the 1930s as, as a stanza from a poem. There's not many words to the national anthem. Funnily enough, I actually know them in English, which is bizarre beyond belief. And I'll, uh, we'll come to why I know that. Um, can you... Can arise, come on? you who refuse to be bond slaves. And so it goes on. Gosh, OK. <laughs> anyway, okay cool. anyway, so... Um, <laughs> oh, God, am I going to be prosecuted for that? <laughs> Not yet. The law hasn't come into effect. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that um, it started out... Uh, as a poem, and it went into a film. That's how it got uh, well known. This is no politics. Mm. Oh, by the way, it was a film about the struggle against the Japanese who'd occupied Manchuria. And the author of the nas- well, author of the lyrics, the lyrics. This is important. The author of the lyrics had been. Uh, he was a well-known Chinese nationalist, but he fell out with the Guomindang, the, 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 the then biggest nationalist party in China, mm. uh, and w- was shoved in jail. No politics. At all? At all. The, the, the film finally got made, and um, somebody said, you know, this could be set to music. So in true patriotic Chinese style, they got, oh, that's right, a Russian to write the music for it. So it's actually ah. a Russian who wrote, um, wrote the music for March of the Volunteers. Wow. So we, we, we fast-forward to the end of the Kuomintang area, Era, I should say, uh, up to 1949, and just before the communists took over in October, um, there was a there was a, a so called peace conference held in Prague in Czechoslovakia, at uh, which the, the Chinese Communist Party turned up as the representatives of China, even though they weren't governing the country, and they played "March of the Volunteers" as the national anthem, but the, nobody had actually decided it was the national anthem at this point. So they held held a committee, Uh, you know, uh, God, they may have been in Hong Kong, they had a committee. And apparently they had some 600 submissions of of various Uh tunes and lyrics that that might make it. But it was, as ever, it was Mao Zedong. He liked March of the Volunteers because it had this theme of, um, you know, standing up to the imperialist aggressors and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so they then decided March of the Volunteers would indeed be the national anthem. And that's all very well, um, ish. Um, So that was in about what nineteen forty nine, forty nine, shortly Mm. after the the Mm. um, founding of the People's Republic. So that that was kind of okay. I mean, things trotted along, but then it was decided that um, they, they really needed some more sort of references, actually, to the Communist Party in it. So the words would change. Remember, no, ah. politics, no politics, no politics whatsoever. Anyway, but but come the Cultural Revolution, and the writer of the march of uh, the, the lyrics of the March of the Volunteers was declared to be a counter-revolutionary and was slung into jail. So then, of course, that makes the song counter-revolutionary. <laughs> so during the period of the Cultural Revolution, they, they mainly used "The East Is Red." You know that that that, that the, the song from the opera. And so it was sort of put aside, the. the it was just put aside. I mean, okay. they didn't actually formally say, but it was put aside. Mm. He was put in jail and unfortunately died in jail mm. um, after the madness of the the, the, the Cultural Revolution subsided that the, the March of the Volunteers was resuscitated. But I think it was only um, in. I, I, I've forgotten the date, but it was only actually in the 1980s. When it actually became the national anthem again, I mean formally speaking, so what happened was, oh, and incidentally, they then re- re- restored the original words, mm. remember no politics, mm. so all the oh. references to Mao Zedong and what have you were taken out of it, and, and the original words were put back so then you know it was it was restored there was a there was a its status was actually enhanced in in law, but the way it was used. And what is appropriate and inappropriate use of national anthem has never been a matter of legislation until now, strangely. I mean, it was, as you know, it was played very prominently at the handover ceremony in Hong Kong, and it is played at all mm. state and and SAR occasions here. So, you know, there's little doubt it is the national anthem and nobody disputes it. But to say that it's got nothing to do with politics is, you know, it's out there with the fairies. Mm. Why now? Because it's part of the process of of Xi Jinping imposing the legitimacy of the Communist Party and putting into statute in very rigid ways the way that these national symbols should be observed. Now, as I say, they actually have this law in in Macau. Macau, as you know, has been a great lesson and example to Hong Kong. And we've been instructed by Chinese officials to that. We may even come to talk about that a bit later on. But, But... so that's been there for what ten years or something or... since since nineteen ninety nine. Okay, it was, it, so it was they, part they, of. The... They, they, they brought it in immediately after the the handover in in Macau. Hmm. So you know, I mean, um, uh, it, it's fine. I, I it is a national anthem. Let's not let's not play games about this. But it's only a nation that's sort of uncomfortable in its own skin, that gets sort of worried about the way it's sung. When it's sung, you know. I mean, I come from Britain originally, so do you. Mm. You know what happens to the national anthem mm. in Britain? It goes into pop songs. I it, remember the sex, the
0: sex Pistols. Sex
1: Pistols, indeed. Did yeah, a version. Yeah, there were some expletives in that version. Mm. I'm mm. rather sure it can't be played on radio here. Yeah, I think we'll probably pass not on do that. One. that yeah, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you know that that when push comes to shove, and there is a great national occasion, people do sing it with pride in Britain. But nobody mm. needs a law to tell them that. And people do observe it in, in in an appropriate fashion. And it's true. Some of the time people don't. They mock it. They they make versions of it. But it's the same with the flag. You know, the, the Union Jack is used for everything from flogging minis to all sorts of tourist tap. But people go, yeah, well, so what? Hmm. So, you know, it's because people are comfortable in their skins. They're not worried that the, 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 the symbols themselves are the substitute for the reality of authority. A country that really is confident in itself says, we've got confidence in the system. We've got confidence in the people. God help us being confident in the people. But, you know, when you run an authoritarian state, oh, no, 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 that's not good enough. The people are not to be trusted. That's number one. Number two is the people are not to be trusted. Oh, and by the way, number three is... The people are not to be trusted, so you mm. have to have a whole lot of laws telling them how to behave. So, what if you break this law, i.e., you um, you sing it badly? As um, yes, well, um, I mean, you, could, like you what, could be fine. There, there, mm. there, there, there's there, there's proposals in this um, draft legislation, which, instead is only being drafted on the mainland, not here, because of course we do everything very independently here. Sorry, there's a pig flying across the room. (laughs) Um, But that also includes incarceration in certain instances Mm. for for abuse of the National Anthem. Goodness. Great. Mm. Great. Mm. But the the reason, incidentally, it became... I mean, again, this has got nothing to do with politics. The reason it became well-known in English is because the great, great singer Paul Robeson um, was introduced to it in in in, um, in the 1940s. Really? Yes, and sung an English version, um, which um, became very well known. He could also sing it in Chinese. I mean, Paul Robeson was an extraordinary man. But, you know, he was a leading member of the American Communist Party. This wasn't some great coincidence. Oh, and guess who it was who sang the March of the Volunteers in 1949 at the Czech... Um, a, a, a World Peace Conference, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson. In oh. Chinese and in English. Goodness. Yeah. I didn't realise he was a member of the Communist Party. Oh, no, very much uh, so. Okay. Very much okay. so. There, there, there is, for the listener, if you ever want to read a extraordinary book about Paul Robeson, it's a book by Howard Fast called Skill USA, which is about a concert in, in upstate New York, which um, he and, I think, Pete Seeger... Uh, various other well-known lefty uh, musicians were attended to, which was attacked by a fascist mob, and uh, I mean, including with fatalities. And they held it twice, and the whole story of this concert. But it's also the story of Paul Robeson, mm. who's just—I mean, what a man! He was—he was—he was a world-class athlete. He was a very, very well-known actor. You know, he did a famous rendition of, of um, Hamlet. He was a very well-known singer. And, of course, he was blacklisted during the McCarthy period in... in uh, he was in one of America. those? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. But, well, of course, none of this has got anything to do with politics. I, I need to stress that. Of course. In case to, Carrie Lam n- is listening. N- nothing
0: <laughs> to do with politics whatsoever, but presumably mm. this law is going to be enacted come what may. Well,
1: I suppose so, but then, you know, and, you could say that about the national education law, which didn't come into being... I mean, you know,
0: do, do these things, in fact, that one as well, do, I mean, do, do these really give us a, a taste of what is to come? In fact, there's going to be a whole pipeline of these things that are really just going to come. In, be rubber stamped, and
1: well, be that's on the very interesting book. because you've got this coming. This is not there, but it's, it's making its way to the statute books. Hmm. You've got very, very clear indications from the Lamb administration that they're way from being done with new laws on national education, and you then have you know these so called reinterpretations of the basic law about you know how to take an oath and what are the consequences of not taking an oath properly and the oath of course uh, contains references to loyalty to the motherland and all these things so you know you are you are uh, you're steadily seeing this process of eradicating the the high degree of autonomy uh, I, I i i sound like a broken record it's mentioned very often but you know if it 's not mentioned, people accept it as as inevitable and, and desirable um, we'll break for music in, in the news in just a second, but
0: just just one thing one aside you know one story that went through quite quietly this week was this story about the legislators um having to pay back their salaries from the last um,
1: not only their salaries but the salaries that they paid to pay their assistants. Their expenses and their, are, yeah I mean you know that
0: that seems it, it seems to have been uh,
1: outweighed by other news this yeah. week um, i mean that's very interesting it 's now Hong kong going down the singapore route the singapore route has always been that the way to deal with uppity um legislators who you don't like is to bankrupt them and this is what it will do and of course once you've bankrupted them you can say oh they're bankrupts. they're not desirable people they can't run for office i mean it it it's a tried and tested method of using the law rather than you know having rule by law to, to do these things. And I mean, it's particularly obnoxious in the case of the second round of banned legislators because they had been accepted as legislators and retrospectively it was decided that they weren't. And, I mean, they, did the first actually, and two, they did actually work. Yes, and the first two, it's true, had, uh, mm. their status as legislators was questioned from day one. But the other four had been accepted by the president of mm. the legislature. As being, And now they're saying, well, yeah, we said accept. But, you know, when we say accept, it doesn't mean accept. (laughs) Steve Vines is here, as ever,
0: on a Thursday morning. And the news there, uh, uh, Steve, um, they touched on the national anthem. uh... Yeah,
1: Michael Teane saying Mm -hmm. that he he has concerns. And I think quite a lot of people do. Mm. You know, the, the, the devil is in the detail with these things. I mean, to say that the national anthem is the national anthem seems to me relatively uncontroversial um but but then you know you're going to pick people off the streets for humming it i I mean you may say oh that's just ridiculous until it happens until it happens okay um
0: it it has been typhoon two typhoons we've had and um actually we might have a third by the sound of it we may indeed um which is a bit worrying but uh, that they come so thick and fast but um i think what's come out of that a little bit on the on on our side if you like is Macau, what's
1: going on? Well, what is going on? I mean, you've had fatalities in Macau. Mm. You had uh, uh, what now seems for the number ten the, the first of those two tycoons. You had something like a two-hour d- delay mm. in raising the um, number ten signal in in Macau, and the rumours in Macau, which are f- throwing flowing thick and fast, mm. are to the effect that the determination of when the signal is raised, comes from the Macau casino bosses who, who, who have certain other priorities which don't include saving people's lives and making sure that flood precaution measures are taken. So the fact that the head of the observatory in Macau has had to resign I don't think that was for, you know, meteorological or personal reasons. I think it may Uh well have been for other reasons. Whether any of that will come out, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because the Macau government, (coughs) in the aftermath of this, has decided that no bad news can be news. So they, 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 they banned four Hong Kong journalists from entering Macau on grounds of national security, unexplained. Well, we don't explain that. It's national security. Um, And then you think, well, that's pretty Mm. bad. Until you've now got these other reports uh, which appeared in in Apple Daily yesterday about how they'd rounded up the bosses of the big newsrooms and said, right, if you guys want to keep your jobs, we don't want any more of this negative news happening. Now I know wow. that Macau isn't a beacon, a shining beacon, of how you run an SAR, and Hong Kong has always uh, enjoyed a lot more autonomy than Macau has. But what seems to be happening is that that intolerance for freedom of expression in Macau, which actually has always been stronger than here, much stronger than here, is is now becoming of, of total mainland standards. I mean, the idea of calling all in all the calling in all these. Um, news executives and telling them what to write in newspapers is something that happens every day on the mainland. Man. It's not a, it's not mm. a new, new development. Banning Hong Kong journalists, uh, this isn't actually the first time they've done that. They've done it before is interesting because they know that the Hong Kong media is much more free than their media and they also know there's a lot of Macau people read the Hong Kong media so they they understand that there's feedback from that now I know that we've been told by senior Chinese officials that we have a lot to learn here in Hong Kong about how to manage things and um, Macau is a shining example of how to run SAR well you know if you want people to die unnecessarily during typhoons if you've taken no flood prevention measures, measures that in a typhoon area should have been taken from not from day one, but from every day, the fact that they had an emergencies committee, which was set up after Mm. the last disastrous typhoon four years ago, and has done nothing, and the reason they've done nothing, I mean, get this, is their actual official explanation is, oh, well, the committee only met as and when there was an emergency. And I'm thinking, no, no, hang on, hang on, boys, hang on, boys, hang on, boys, hang on, boys. No, 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 no. the way this works is you plan for it. You don't wait for it to happen and then call a meeting. You know, you you, you install flood drains as you have in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong has a very, very good record for dealing with this. People don't routinely die in Hong Kong from flooding, from... Uh, you know consequences. I mean, people have died, but but it's not a routine matter. And the cleanup here is just it's staggeringly quick. quick. It's quick. It's quick. So yeah. you know, yeah. um, I know we we should learn everything from a cow, but really, what they mean is we should learn to shut up.
0: I mean, I suppose, you know, one argument could be that, as they said, well, all the electricity was coming from, from China, so, you know, it was cut off not because of Mac- things happening in Macau, but happened, happened in, in Zhuhai yeah. or, or whatever. But but nevertheless, I mean, all of those casino areas are all on reclaimed land, aren't they? are all very low, low-lying. So, surprise, surprise, there's, you know, mm. kind of flooding, right?
1: Gosh, Gosh, who knew?
0: I, you know, it does. You, you, you touched on it again then, but um, you know, Macau being that shining example, unfortunately, I think is going to continue to be.
1: Well, as, um, I as, mean, because they held they, up uh, as in, in the as eyes how we of, should be, in yeah. the eyes of the bosses, you know, tremble and obey is the way to go. <clears throat> By and large, that's what Macau has been doing. You know, uh, we mentioned before the break, you know, that Macau is is the only part of China that actually has a national anthem law already because they're so over-keen to prove that, that you know, yes, sir, yes, sir, you know, there's the, a the little boy at the back of the class who everybody else in the class really hates, who, who, who's shoe-shining the teacher. They're called the Macau SAR government. <laughs> yeah, well, again, I think we're going to see more of that coming uh, I think as we well, aren't we? we are, we are.
0: Um, let's let's turn to something else, and that's the uh, the sad passing of uh, David, David Tang. Tang. Yeah, um, you know a great uh, bon viveur as he's uh, often described, entrepreneur, and many other things. Shanghai Tang, and uh, all kinds of things, but. In a way, I think it's interesting because he's sort of the ultimate link between uh, the UK and Hong Kong. You know, he's, he's, he's very Hong Kong and he's very British at the same
1: time, yeah, I mean, isn't he? He had that sort of uh, wonderful plummy English accent yeah. acquired I, from going to a public school in, in England. I only,
0: <coughs> I only met him once and I met him completely randomly getting off a plane in, uh, uh, in, 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 in London once. I, he was literally in front of me as we got off the plane. Um, so I don't
1: know him at all, but you knew him quite well. Well... I, I wouldn't say I, I knew him. I have met him actually several times, mm. more than several times, probably. But but, and he also happens to be a neighbour of mine in Sai Kung. Uh, that's his second house. No, I don't have such a thing. I'm but, sure he has a few more. So. He has a lovely house in Sai Kung on the waterfront with a very big garden. Uh, very nice. Uh, I hope I hope the family keeps that. But anyway, but I mean, what what always interested me about uh, David Tang was. I mean, on the one hand, he was a sort of absurd figure because he, he was sort of obsessed with name-dropping. Uh, but in his case, he actually did know all those people. I've, mm. I've come across name-droppers who didn't, you know, drop names of people they didn't know. He actually did know all these people. He was an amazing networker. But what I think was his true talent was he had a... He had, I think what you're saying, he managed to to leverage into business opportunities. So, you know, he had this sort of foot in both camps. He was very English, he was very Hong Kong. And he he found a way of making that into a business, like Shanghai Tang, like the China clubs, of which there are now many. He wasn't actually, I mean, people keep saying he was a great businessman. He wasn't a great businessman. He had some good
0: ideas, right? He had
1: great ideas, Mm. and Mm. all of those clubs, I mean... Are not owned by him anymore. Shanghai Tang has actually gone through two ownerships since mm. he founded it. But who had the flair and the vision to get them off the ground? I think that, that I, was him. It was him, that wasn't was him. it? I mean, running a mundane business, I tell you, not his cup of tea, and he wasn't particularly good at it. I think China, the China Club, was,
0: it was, it was for me, was one of the interesting ones because, you know, here he was a building that in, in, the, in the late 60s was, w- you, it was the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist yeah, regime. Yeah, it, it was speaker,
1: the Bank of China building. The Bank yeah, of China building. Yeah.
0: That's right. And suddenly he, he manages to install this sort of upmarket club a- 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 attracting all of these foreigners. And yes. basically is what it is because China yes. Club isn't really about China, Chinese, it's, it, really. It, it's it's more about and, foreigners. But,
1: you know, I mean, one of the things he had a very good eye yeah uh, And the building is a sort of art decoish building It's actually a really I, nice building I yeah. say sort of because yeah. it's not entirely an art deco building, but by the time he'd finished with the upstairs bit, which is the China Club, it became very <laughs> art deco indeed <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's a lovely piece of kit it is it's a very nice um it's a very nice outfit doesn't in my view serve the finest Chinese food, but uh, these are all matters of opinion. but the fact of the matter is you know. Who had the connections? Mm. And his connection in this instance was through T.T. Choi, who was very close, uh, uh, who's also deceased, uh, very close to the <coughs> Chinese Communist Party, who, who had all the connections, helped helped him through the door. Sorry, who was T.T. Choi? T.T. Choi um, was a big tycoon. He was actually, his, he, he started out as a paint manufacturer, but like all Hong Kong typhoons, he ended up. Um, with property, <laughs> who knew property? <laughs> um, what a what an original diversion! But uh, uh, and he was involved in some interesting things on on the sort of darker side of life. But anyway, the fact of the matter was he was very very well connected. He was his partner in the uh, in the China Club, and. Um, but you know, it was it, it, the China Club was hundred percent David Tang. Mm. It wasn't hundred percent T.T. T. T. Choi. Mm. It was his, you mm. know, his vision of, of of an Art Deco club, his his artwork, his his a, a lot of input into design and the whole flavor of the place, which was basically uh, it, it, the, the aura was supposed to be nineteen twenties Shanghai, and it was. It was. That's yeah. exactly what it was. Well, it is. Yeah. I should say it's still going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and the other thing is, he kind of dabbled in politics. He was um, because he was an inveterate networker. He did he did use that to to insert himself into the um, political arena. So I mean, you know, he sort of acted as an intermediary with the Brits. He sort of acted as a um, a sounding board. I know that that Chris Patton listened to him quite a lot. Hmm. I know that. Um, in the period after Tiananmen, when relations between Britain and China were, were tense, in fact, between China and the rest of the world were very tense, but it was more pressing for Britain because the agreement had already been signed for the handover of Hong Kong, and the question was, you know, how was that going to be implemented when China was in this state of trauma? I mean, he was one of the people who, who we are told, I don't know whether it's true or not, but we are told, went to see john major who was the prime minister at the time and advised him on what i still think was an ill-fated visit to, to Beijing. but it was the visit that got the airport project kick started well re re kick started if mm. you, if you know because mm. it was already on the on on the blocks and david tang
0: was actually at that point he was quite a young man i mean he's died at the age of just 63 63, so he must have been in his mid-30s at that point in you know after tenement which was what 89 89, so he must be fairly fairly influential
1: from from you know quite a young age well i mean let's not forget he didn't emerge from nowhere (laughs) his his grandfather was 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 a very very prominent figure a hmm. uh, gold trader among other things so you know i mean the tang family he's not a boy from the sticks i i know he always used to say oh you know my grandfather kicked me and my mother and my grandmother out because of various reasons and and we were left to fend for ourselves it's not actually quite true i mean there was enough money to send him to an english public school hmm. they didn't live in squalor i mean maybe kicked out from the millionaire mansion but not <laughs> not left in a housing estate in, in, in Sham Shui Po.
0: I mean, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, that, that if you start with money, you, you yes, actually have a lot, yes. of, a lot so of opportunities. If you,
1: if you start with a billion and you go down to a mere hundred million, <laughs> it's, it's pretty bad, but it's still a hundred million. But, I, those figures aren't... But, aren't but nevertheless, figures.
0: out of all that, he was a character, he was an entrepreneur. Well, he, what
1: I like about hmm. him is he was larger than... I mean, I hmm. do like a larger-than-life person. Hmm. Very sharp mind. And, you know, very... Um, genuine i mean genuine enthusiasm, enthusiasm. yeah i love yeah, that yeah you know you think how many people in business in hong kong who look like you know look as interesting as a sheet of accounts and talk as interestingly <laughs> as though they've just come off a paper paper thing i mean here was a man who had ideas and did something about them and you know went you know if he want, wanted something boy did he go for it
0: yeah yeah
1: so you know in that way he's totally admirable and, you know, you can forgive him the name-dropping and the slight exaggerations. Well, kudos to uh, to David David Tang for all
0: that uh, he did, and uh, I'm sure he'll be uh, sorely missed.
1: And remember...
0: So, Steve Vines is with us, and uh, it's the end of an era this weekend, right?
1: Well, it is. You say, if, if you're listening to this on digital radio, which I certainly do at home, because I live in Sai Kung, and all other forms of radio reception are pretty, pretty damn poor... Um, it, it, the listener who listens to Morning Brew next Thursday will not be listening to it on digital radio because it will be closed down. Hmm. I think it's a very, very sad day. And I, I, you know, I know we're talking on RTHK and I'm not an employee of RTHK, so maybe I can say this. But the fact of the matter is, I simply do not understand the reason to close down the whole service. And I especially don't understand the reason for closing down the BBC World Service transmissions. <coughs> which are both on on AM and on digital, and um, substituting it by by a Putonghua service, which, to the best of my knowledge, is listened to by practically no one because it exists at the moment. You can get it on on RTHA's current digital service. I just don't understand why you would actually do that. Mm. I really don't understand why you would do it. Uh, I mean, our good friend politics may well have be playing a role really? here. <laughs> Who knows? But the fact of the matter is that it, 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 the BBC World Service in itself is what it is. But it's also, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, and this is what matters because we're in Hong Kong, it's a reflection of the fact that this is an open and international city and will transmit on open airwaves broadcasters from other places uh, including those which are world standard. And I think whatever you think of the BBC World, sta- world Service, and of course it has many political opponents, domestically, incidentally, as, as well as internationally.
0: We, we should we should just quickly say that uh, BBC World Service will be available on Radio 4 uh, from 11 o'clock uh, at night until 7 o'clock in the morning uh, going forward. I think that's the, that's the plan, I hear. I
1: understand that is the plan. I also understand that's not prime broadcasting time, but... Um, <clears throat> no yep yep it will still be there so it's not totally disappearing but, but the-, the fact is that that listeners in hong kong for for many decades have enjoyed access access to it through uh through their radios now it is true you know and i know that rthk has mentioned this you you can get um digital uh, sorry you can get internet broadcasts of it but actually you can get internet broadcasts of any station in the world that's I believe why it's called the World Wide Web, but correct me if I'm wrong there.
0: Well, I guess we all hope that it's, it, it, you know, the, the Internet-delivered stuff will have more of an impact and be more easy to, to access going forward because it, it, you know, there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of choice. But nevertheless, the ending of the digital radio um, is a bit of a shock
1: because in some parts of the world it is, uh, it's booming. You know, it's got... booming in many parts mm. of the world, in fact. Mm. Um, again, I, 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 I'm having to give my digital radio, which I bought as a waste of money, I want to say, uh, to my sister in London, because she's a very avid listener to digital radio. There's endless, I mean, the whole point about digital radio, as if we didn't know, but let's just make clear what it is, is it gives you enormous amount of spectrum. Mm. So, you know, you can have tiny little local broadcasts, you can have great big national or international type of broadcasting and many things in between those two. I mean, it gives you a flexibility and the fact that we have that system here and we're actually throwing it in the dustbin. Is, I mean, is this one of these things that Hong Kong sort of sometimes has become a little
0: bit known for? And that is not seeing something through properly not not doing it properly not making it happen properly for instance it didn't force the commercial radio broadcasters to go well, onto DAB that's,
1: that's big part of it i mean you know poor old RTHK was left carrying the can i mean it's only in, in hong kong it's only rthk that does digital broadcasting now in in other jurisdictions the the, the, broad, the people who control the broadcasting system, remember in Hong Kong it's very heavily controlled, you have to have licences, you don't just come on, and, you know, mm. you don't just set up a, a radio station and hope for the best. Um, they, they, just, they just crumbled in the face of opposition from the commercial broadcasters. Mm. And, you know, they have the power to say, this is the new technology, we in Hong Kong are committed to a better quality of broadcasting, you've got to do it. And mm. they didn't do that. They didn't do it.
0: Uh, yeah, sadly, I, I think I think this may be a continuing story of uh, yeah. other similar <laughs> things
1: called lost opportunity.
0: It is though. The last time you'll hear Steve Steve Vines on Body Brew on digital
1: radio, so <laughs> so you better say in, your goodbyes in, in clearer sound. Goodbye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> see you not next week, Steve. We'll see you the week after because you're 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 away next week.